0: Space tourism and ringed planets. You're listening to Are We There Yet, the radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. As early as next year, space tourism company Space Perspectives will ferry humans to the edge of space using a giant hydrogen filled balloon. The capsule will have all the comforts of home, like a bar and a bathroom, and promises breathtaking views of the curvature of the Earth and blackness of space. And as more space tourism ventures come online, how will greater access to space change how humans perceive this planet? We'll talk with Space Perspective CEOs Jane Poynter and Tabor McCallum about the dawn of space tourism. Then, why do some planets have rings? We'll talk with our panel of expert scientists on this week's segment, I'd Like to Know. That's ahead, but first let's take a look at the latest space news stories making headlines. NASA's next Mars rover is making final preparations ahead of a launch to the Red Planet from Cape Canaveral in July. The Mars Perseverance rover will launch to Mars on ULA's Atlas V rocket. Its mission is to search for ancient signs of life, collect samples of the Martian surface for a future return mission, and hear what the surface is made of using a microphone and a laser beam. The spacecraft is here on Florida's Space Coast, where technicians are making final preparations to the rover and landing system before strapping it to the top of the rocket. The launch was delayed slightly due to an issue with ground systems at the launch site, but the current launch is scheduled for July 20th, with a two-hour window opening at 9.15 a.m. Eastern Time. We'll talk more about this mission throughout July, so stay listening. And you can find more space news online, visit wmfe.org slash space, or give me a follow on Twitter, I'm at SpaceBrendan. The space tourism sector is heating up, with companies like Blue Origin and Virgin Galactic nearing the finish line of testing to take regular people to the edge of space. Another company hopes to follow in those footsteps. Space Perspectives announced plans to take people to the edge of space using a hydrogen-filled balloon. The experience promises spectacular views and the ability to share those experiences with the world through social media mid-flight. So why space tourism? What's the draw for people to spend tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars for a new perspective on Earth? We're joined by Space Perspectives CEOs Jane Pointer and Tabor McCallum about the dawn of space tourism and what they expect their guests will get from the experience. Jane, Tabor, thanks for speaking with us.
1: Yeah, it's our pleasure.
0: Thank you. So let's start off with, um, let's say it's launch day for me. What am I going to experience? Walk me through this whole... Training that I will have to go through and and what I'm what I'm going to go through to to kind of fly to the edge of space.
1: Right. Well, we will wake you up fine and early. And the previous day you will have had a brief uh, safety briefing and that kind of thing. Not a whole lot because you don't really need it to get on on this vehicle. Uh, we'll wake you up early, we'll bring you amazing coffee, whatever you would like to drink and eat, and then you will be taken out to the launch site. It'll be pre-dawn, possibly. Uh, You will uh, climb into Spaceship Neptune, the capsule. Um, It'll be super comfortable. Um, We will launch. It'll be incredibly gentle when you launch. Uh, And you will rise for about two hours. Uh, And as you get up to altitude, you will start to see, well, before you get up to altitude, you will see the incredible starscape, uh, because it will be very inky dark. Uh, and uh, uh, if there's no moon out. Um, and then as the sun rises, you will start to see it come over the limb of the earth and you will see the curvature of the earth that will be shining through this thin line of our atmosphere. It's the most extraordinary sight. And you will watch the terminus, it goes across the, the ground and the sea below you uh, and then uh, about two hours after that, we will gently start coming back down and you will splash down in the sea. We will pick up the uh, the capsule, the balloon. Everyone will disembark on the boat and we'll be brought back to shore.
0: Easy as that, huh?
1: Of course.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, tell me a little bit about spaceship neptune what does it look like um what's it like inside what amenities does it have so we went through a lot of trades
2: about what the shape should be and how it should look and what we ended up with was a series of columnar windows that uh, go sort of floor to ceiling in a 16 foot diameter almost spherical shaped uh capsule and so what that allows you to see is from the inky black sky down to the curvature of the earth uh, all in one sort of big eyeful. So you don't get an, un- you don't have any obstructions in vertically in your, in what you see. And then standing in the middle of the capsule, you can see the earth all around you in all directions. So it's set up really to optimize around viewing. There's, there's eight passengers and one pilot, The co-pilot, is on the ground and can pilot things from the ground if need be. And all those chairs are arranged in a a circle pointing outwards with access to the center of the circle where you can have events like weddings and and things like that. So it's really set up to be a, a beautiful, serene, sort of optimal viewing location with two very important features that we believe anything called a spaceship has to have, and that is a bar and
0: a lavatory, and that that seems very very important. Uh, so, I I am glad that you put that in there. Um, is it in the same place though? That could be a, a bit of an issue.
2: <laughs> so the uh, no. the lavatory is actually uh, uh, sort of below the floor. You go down a bit of stairs to it uh, between all the seats, so it's all enclosed up. Uh, and then uh, also, I forgot to mention. Uh, Any spaceship has to have Wi-Fi and a great connection to the Internet. So you can update your uh, status on Facebook or have events with uh, people on the ground or send pictures. So it's meant to facilitate all kinds of interaction.
0: It's such an interesting looking, from the renders that you've shared with us, it's such an interesting looking vehicle. Tabor, I wonder if you can uh, explain a little bit about how the development of, of Spaceship Neptune uh, where it's at now, um, and kind of what work is left to be done before you start um, actually flying this thing.
1: Oh, we're done, right, Tabor? <laughs> we're, we're ready to go.
2: <laughs> Give me a couple of minutes.
1: i will be right back.
2: <laughs> so we have been through sort of our first couple of rounds of engineering, which occurs in sort of a cyclical set, with each round more refined than the last. Uh, you know, the early ones were big trades. How do we uh, how do we make this work with a business plan? What are the important features of of it? And the so the, the, the big picture items came up early in the trades when it became very clear that we needed to splash down uh, for a couple of reasons. One, it was getting hard to find launch and landing locations on land in the earth. And since the earth is misquoted as new, it's 70% water, it actually turns out to be relatively easy to find Launch locations that you can uh, have access to and splash down in an ocean nearby. So, Florida is perfect for us, especially at Kennedy Space Center, because the the upper atmosphere winds, when you're floating essentially on top of the Earth's atmosphere, tend to go east or west depending on the time of year. So, we'll splash down in the Gulf or the Atlantic depending on when we go. So, those sort of big picture how we expand around the world. Uh, the operations of Neptune were were critical. And then it was really about it being a accessible experience and an immersive, safe experience for for everybody. When we talk to astronauts, they say that the real quintessential astronaut experience is sort of very quietly, you know, for long periods of time, being able to watch the world outside and really sort of contemplate the earth in the blackness of space. And so uh, we set about making an experience that was really like that. One of the key aspects of it actually is you know we go up at a blazing 12 miles an hour and back down at a blazing 12 miles an hour. So it's all a bicycling speed. And that uh, Alan Eustace who's flown before who we took up to set the human flight world record talks a lot about how it's it's really interesting to slowly see the earth recede away. Because you can really keep track of scale and you get a sense for the first time of how big the Earth really is or or isn't and how sort of small it is.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because that was my next question is Jane, what kind of experience do you anticipate people will have with such a, a unique journey up to those altitudes?
1: We've of course talked to many astronauts who have had this view. Or a similar view from to what we want to give people uh, and just about every one of them talks about it in you know how moved they were by this view and most of them will also talk about how you know they sat in the window uh, for you know an extended period of time to really absorb it to really take it in and they ended up with this tremendous connection. They felt this great bond with the earth as a planet, as our home, and that all humanity is on this single planet as the single human family. And you can ask almost any astronaut and they will tell you in in different words, that that was the experience they essentially had. So that is the experience that uh, we anticipate that many people will have when they go up on Neptune. Uh, And being able to give it to people in this sort of slow, accessible, gentle way where you can really acclimate to the environment that you're in, I think is going to really support being able to have that experience.
0: What kind of um, authorization, authority do you need to launch one of these things? I mean, where, where does a, a space balloon fit into? Is it, is it FAA? Is it NASA? Is it Air Force? Uh, what kind of steps do you have to take to get authorized for one of these flights?
2: Well, that was one of the early questions that we had to figure out uh, before we could even get serious about a business plan. So we went to the FAA and said, well, what do you think? And so they looked at the hot air balloon regulations and it talks about you know, a, a, a cloth uh, carbon balloon and wicker basket and that didn't work out. So uh, we ended up being regulated as a spaceship, uh, just like Virgin Galactic or uh, SpaceX. So we go through the same regulatory uh, and safety uh, regimes as they do.
0: Uh, Talk to me a a little bit about, uh, you mentioned Florida is a a good place because of the upper atmosphere winds, and and you've got the Atlantic on one side and the Gulf on the other side to splash down. But there's got to be some heritage of, of launching Spaceship Neptune from Florida, right?
1: So, of course, one of the things that's really exciting about being in Florida, aside from sort of the practical aspects of being here, is being right here at Kennedy Space Center on the Space Coast. You know, we're really excited about being able to provide uh, some of our customers the singular opportunity, the very rare opportunity to launch from from that location. So that was uh, also a very important part of, of the decision to make uh, this area our first launch site.
0: Now, you are joining a, a small handful of other companies that are offering these space tourism experiences. We've got Blue Origin. Uh, Virgin, Galactic. So here, here's the, the big philosophical question. With more and more people getting to space, what is that going to do to humanity? How, how will this change us when we become more and more spacefaring like this?
2: Well, I, I think one of the things that I'm hoping happens is that we have you know, our, our leadership and spiritual leaders and artists and people of all walks of life really start to get in a visceral sense that, you know, we're all here together on this little planet with a thin atmosphere. And, and this is for all intents and purposes, really what we have. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it's hard to get that in a visceral sense. We, Jenny and I were crew members in Biosphere 2, and we got that sense because we lived in our own little tiny biosphere for two years and 20 minutes. Um, and we get that from astronauts, but I think especially today... Uh, you know, the, the, the words that we've heard astronauts say are so uh, important and prophetic about us understanding how we're all here together on this small world. I think uh, the interconnected nature of the world is something we all need to really understand uh, and how we're all in this together, uh, I think would help in this time.
0: And who gets to go? I'm hoping a journalist is on the list,
2: maybe a podcaster. Actually, we, have a, we have a partnership with an interesting organization called Space for Humanity, and they are funding trips to send people of all kinds of backgrounds, journalists and artists and spiritual leaders to go to space because they see that experience as being so important. Um, and I think there'll be other programs like that and there'll be programs that we have as well uh, so we, we really are committed to uh, finding ways to have all sorts of people take this journey and, you know, report about it. I, I think it's, uh, uh, you know, even if we were to fly tens of thousands of people, it's still a very small slice of humanity.
0: How important was that to you, Jane, to be able to have this, this you know, accessibility to, to get onto spaceship neptune and do this because when you think of space tourism especially in in its infancy this is you know a rich club you need to have quarter of a million dollars to fly on one of these things how important was it that that folks would be able to access this across all walks of life
1: so it's core to the company and when we think about accessibility we think about it in several different ways there's the the ability to simply go on it and Uh, you know, not have high G's and all of those things that come uh, with a rocket ship, which, you know, is going to be great for for many people, but but for some people, they either don't want to or cannot go on that kind of vehicle. Uh, And so, you know, Tabor and I for many, many years have asked ourselves, how do we get everyone else up? (laughs) And uh, I remember very well the day when he walked into my office and said, what do you think about taking people up to space under a balloon? And it was immediately, well, of course, because it is so physically accessible, because it is so gentle. And we can make it so comfortable so so that 's an aspect of it, and then you know obviously there's the financial accessibility of it, and you know we are still going to space, so initially it is still going to be you know we haven 't set the ticket price yet, um, but you know it's going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of half a ticket price that it would cost you to go on another suborbital uh, flight, so that puts you in the region of a hundred thousand one hundred and twenty five though we certainly do hope that uh, through partnerships with other organizations, and then eventually getting the ticket price down, we can get, make, make this increasingly available to, to people.
0: I want to ask you about another aspect to this, not just flying humans, but there's the opportunity to fly science on this as well. I know, um, you know Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin are also offering suborbital flights to researchers. Is that something that, uh, that you know, scientists can hitch a ride on spaceship Neptune and, and do some science?
1: Yeah, for sure. So, so there's several ways to do that. Um, one is that we have the rare opportunity to be able to fly uh, the same payload again and again and again, uh, which for any researcher who's done a science uh, in the space environment will know that's incredibly rare. And so we'll be able to take, uh, give a researcher a repeat flight of their instruments without the human component. Um, there'll be uh, what's called a ride flight, so we'll be putting those instruments on Neptune along with people. Uh, and there's a whole variety of really exciting research that can be done with that, um, not least of which is some critical climate science and atmospheric science, earth science. There's also you know, astrophysics and solar physics and even astrobiology, which is pretty out there and cool. Um, and then yes, absolutely. Um, we hope that we will uh, take researchers themselves. Uh, no reason why not. And um, there's a lot of uh, lot of reasons why that that would be a good idea.
2: In fact, uh, NASA has just put out a request for information about flying researchers in uh, these kinds of uh, commercial launch vehicles. So uh, it's a very exciting time in a, you know, where I think we're really seeing a renaissance in human spaceflight and it's going to come in many different forms. And that's part of why it's such a great time to be uh, looking at human flight.
0: And finally, um, what's left? Um, What's left for you to do before you can take these inaugural flights? And when might that be? So uh, what's the major thing that's left
2: is completing the design of the capsule and then getting into a, what would be a long rigorous and arduous uh, series of, of, Uncrewed and then crewed test flights uh, over the course of uh, the next four and a half years or so. So uh, we expect in about four and a half years to be on our first commercial flight, but don't hold us to dates because uh, this is uh, like you see with other commercial companies. Uh, You know, we're all going to do this when we're good and ready and it's safe, and that's going to take the time that it takes.
0: That was Space Perspectives CEOs Tabor McAllen and Jane Pointer. Still to come, why do planets have rings? Are We There Yet? is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? I'm Brendan Byrne. Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune all have rings. But a new study out this month says ancient Mars might have also had a little something around its waist, too. So why do some planets have rings, and where did they go? On this week's I'd Like to Know segment, we're asking our panel of expert physicists from the University of Central Florida, Addie Dove, Jim Cooney, and Josh Caldwell. Josh Caldwell kicks off the conversation describing the latest findings on the ancient rings of Mars.
3: It's indirect evidence, and it's sort of based on the the motions of these uh, moons. Uh, Mars has two small moons, Phobos and Deimos, and Phobos is moving in towards Mars, and if it just continues moving in the way it is now, it'll crash on the surface of Mars in 100 million years or so. Deimos is going the other direction, but Deimos has a funny orbit that seems to, uh, g- can be explained by perturbations from an inner moon that was maybe a proto-Phobos, like if Phobos was previously much larger, it might have uh, evolved in such a way to tweak the orbit of Deimos and, and put it on its current path. And so uh, some scientists have proposed that when that inner moon gets closer to Mars, it breaks apart and forms a ring. And then the outer rubble of that outward the ring, and then those moons interact with each other. And uh, they were able to do some, some numerical simulations that showed that in certain configurations, at least you could reproduce the, the current situation with Mars's moons.
0: I'm thinking that, you know, rings are pretty common in our solar system then if, if, you know, if this is the case, right? Why is that? Why do you, why do you planets have rings in the first place?
4: Yeah, we see a lot of objects that have rings. Um, we've actually seen some asteroids or some um, small, some much smaller objects that have rings actually. Um, and obviously all of the, the giant planets have rings. Um, mostly that's because things run into each other a lot. Things get gravitationally pulled apart a lot. Um, i wouldn't so, say
5: by the way that that's obvious uh it's obvious that saturn has rings but i think that uh, it's not actually common knowledge that the other ones also have rings but yeah jupiter uranus and neptune also have rings pretty cool
4: yeah they're much thinner um harder to sort of optically see you can't see you have to see them usually with sort of some indirect observing techniques mm-hmm. a lot of times, yeah but all of the outer planets have rings and um, this
3: discovery that you were mentioning Addie, about those small trans neptunian objects with rings that caught me completely by surprise i'm like still
4: yeah. blown away
3: yeah
5: because we yeah. have a pretty good understanding of why these big big moons have rings And i'll let you explain that Addy, in just a second because you were about to but uh, the small <laughs> planet i mean none of the inner planets uh earth mercury venus mars they don't have rings and uh this has right. always been the kind of textbook way we you know the we mm-hmm. expect the outer ones have rings and not the inner ones why is that yeah why is that Adi? yeah
4: why is that um, I mean so so probably when the earth formed and then the moon formed from the earth right there was this big collision there' was probably a temporary ring around the earth then too that eventually sort of coalesced to form the moon um, but a lot of it has to do with sort of the, the size of the objects and how much gravity they have how likely they are to sort of pull things apart and then how stable those orbits are going to be around those planets um, and the whole thing with Mars is potential ring that it's had in the past is that it probably formed when something else got pulled apart and then it became unstable itself and formed into a new, uh, a new moon. Um, mm-hmm. so we see material getting pulled apart and formed into moons and Saturn's rings too. We see a lot of these little moonlets and little temporary objects that, that happen in Saturn's rings. Um, mm-hmm. and so we do see this happening other places in the solar system.
0: Mm-hmm. And Josh, why were you so surprised about the, the trans, Neptunian is that the is that the right word? Am I saying it right? That's
3: correct. Yeah. Why are we so TNOs by that for funny. short.
0: Uh, and I guess these are actually centaurs.
3: I I, I, yeah. I said neptunian objects, but I misspoke. Actually, they're centaurs, which are former Jeez. trans-Neptunian objects. How dare you? Uh, How are, dare
0: you, Josh? That are now
3: <laughs> that uh, have are, are now have uh, their orbits have brought them into the sort of realm of the outer planets, and these are small objects. You know, they're a few hundred kilometers across and they've got narrow rings and as Addy said it's you can easily explain making a ring things run into each other you produce debris and you have that debris ring but those uh, rings like to evolve very quickly rings would spread out the particles would uh, crash onto the surface Um, if they're small particles they get cleared out by radiation forces the same sort of things that give a comet a nice big tail it's pushing those particles away so keeping them in orbit around a little tiny object that's got a weak gravitational field for astronomical time periods is a, a really interesting challenge and so then we say maybe these things formed recently i mean now we even suspect that maybe saturn's rings aren't that old or only tens of millions of years old so then that that creates a really sort of fun dynamic picture of the solar system with lots of collisions going on kind of at the current epoch that are breaking up little moonlets around not only planets, but small objects as well.
5: It's kind of fun, right? It means that like the, uh, we happen to be exist in our solar system right now when Saturn has this big, awesome ring system. If we'd randomly placed ourselves into the solar system sometime between its formation and uh, 10 billion years or 5 billion years from now, there'd probably be some other, you know, maybe Jupiter would have at that point a really nice uh, ring system, or uh, Uranus would have a huge ring system. So it's kind of, these are short-lived-ish things, and uh, Saturn just happens to
0: be the winner right now. Mm -hmm. I I mean, going back to the original article that kind of sparked this conversation, I mean, does does knowing that there's evidence of rings, does it kind of give you a, a snapshot as to what was happening in a particular moment in history, you know, in the formation of, of our solar system? Does is, is it help kind of better understand where these planets came from and, and how we came to be?
3: Well, for Mars's moons, uh, for a long time, it was believed that those little tiny moons were captured asteroids. And now, by studying them more carefully and looking at their orbits and uh, trying to learn more about their compositions, it seems that a more likely scenario is that they're pieces of Mars, that they're products of Mars or the formation of Mars, and now this sort of Martian ring theory suggests that they're remnants of a earlier system of moons that has sort of been cycling between moons and rings. And each time you lose a little bit of material. So they're, they're wasting away maybe, but hundred million years ago or a billion years ago, you might've seen some, some uh, more substantial moons at Mars. And depending on exactly when you showed up, as Jim was saying, you might've seen a ring system there too.
0: Is there any chance that we could get a ring or another moon could we get some additional celestial bling
3: <laughs> we're making our own ring man
0: we're launching <laughs> we're launching yes
3: <laughs> yep we're launching ring particles at a, at, a, at an increasingly uh, fast rate <laughs> i sure hope we don't get a really big natural ring like we had when the moon formed because we would not survive that event
0: That was UCF scientists and hosts of the podcast Walk About the Galaxy, Addie Dove, Jim Cooney, and Josh Caldwell. You can get their podcast, Walk About the Galaxy, wherever you get this show or visit walkaboutthegalaxy.com. If you've got a question for our panel, send us an email. It's arewetheryetatwmfe.org. Are We There Yet? is production of WMFE and WMFV. Editorial guidance this week from Matthew Petty. Our director of content is Steve Yasko. Support for Are We There Yet? comes from our listeners. You can help this show and the other local journalism you rely on by making a donation at WMFE.org. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.